Mark chapter 8 is where we are again today. Mark chapter 8. We've been working through this gospel chapter by chapter and book, verse by verse, rather. And we are in this text today that in many ways is contextually dependent upon what precedes and follows, and so I'm going to seek to try to set that context for us. But as we get into this, you know, many of you know that I grew up in the Chicago land area, and up there it's, and I know several of you have spent time in the Northeast as well, and so you are very familiar with some of the things that I'm about to describe before you, the had experiences with snowfall, right? Down here, you know, we, we get like, you know, flurries of snow and schools close like that. It's like, what's going on, right? We used, to, we used to drive in a foot of snow, right? We used to do all these things, right? Well, every year we would get several feet of snow and it doesn't, you know, evaporate like that. It would hang around for a little while and so there'd be dedicated snow plows and snow crews that would go out and remove the snow and things because we can't just shut down the whole city for weeks on end because the snow is going to stick around for weeks on end. No, we got to clean it up. We got to get back to work. Life has to go on. And then there would be those more severe storms which would dump like several feet all at once, right? Those would come around every few years. Uh, That would cause all kinds of havoc and pandemonium everywhere. Well, as as I was a kid, I remember spending time and and shoveling snow. I'd make quite a good, good money shoveling snow. And after a while, I graduated from the snow shovel and got one of those nice snow blowers, right, that, that you push along, gas-powered, it shoots the snow out. Well, did you know that there are two kinds, two styles, broadly speaking, of snow blowers? There are single-stage blowers and two-stage blowers. A single-stage blower has a single mechanism for throwing the snow. There's the auger at the front, and as it spins, it, it scoops up the snow, and it shoves it through the chute, and it, that's, it's one action that throws the snow out, one spinning thing throws it out. But then there are the two-stage blowers. The two-stage blower has the same auger that scoops the snow up and it pushes it into the chute, but then there's a a second mechanism in there that's spinning that then takes the snow that's being fed to it and then throws it out. And as you can imagine, a two-stage blower is Well, it's going to be more expensive, but it's also going to be more efficient and more powerful. It's able to throw the snow a farther distance because there's a second mechanism in there that's spinning that is able to do the job that in the single-stage blower, it's being all handled by one auger. And so the design of the two-stage blower allows it to accomplish more than the the single-stage blower could do all on its own. Well, as we look into the Word of God today, we're going to find a two-stage miracle in our text today. A two-stage miracle unfold before us, and the fact that Jesus does this miracle in two stages, that's been a source of of discussion and, and confusion for many. We might ask the questions, why did Jesus have to do it this way? Or he, he laid his hands on this man twice to try to heal him. Why did he do that? He didn't have to do that for anybody else in the book of Mark, but he does that here. What's the issue? Was he not powerful enough to do it in one shot? What is the purpose of that? Well, my opening illustration is admittedly a bit of a crude analogy, uh, but just like our two-stage snowblower, it's able to accomplish more with two stages, so Jesus' two-stage healing is designed to accomplish more than just one purpose. 
And when we put this miracle within its context, we're going to, do, to find an incredible connection again to what comes right before this miracle and what comes after. Because this miracle, just like the rest of this book as we've been studying it, we should never read one section in isolation, right? We never read a Bible verse. We read Bible verses within their context. And when we read them within the, in connection with their surrounding context, we discover the purpose for why Jesus did things this way within this particular section. Often this dynamic of trying to fit things within the context, it can make it difficult to know, okay, how many, how many verses should I try to break off for an individual sermon, right? We, as, as Jim and I have been kind of working through the book of Mark together, and we've kind of wrestled with that. Where do, we, where do we stop this? Where do we start that? How do we fit this together? And this is one of those examples where these passages really are connected together. There's a literary hole here that we need to pay attention to to rightly understand the text. Here we have thematic connections between what Jesus has just said to the disciples immediately preceding this, and then that's going to bring us into a new section where Jesus is going to teach us specific things. And the key takeaway that I want us to see from this text together, that, that gaining eyes to see, of course we're speaking the eyes of faith, gaining eyes to see is often a process. Gaining eyes to see is often a process. Let's read our text together this morning. This is Mark chapter 8 beginning in verse 22. Mark writes, And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hand on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And then he sent him into to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. As we consider this miracle, there are there are several details here that might be considered incidental to the text and, and follow a bit of a pattern that we have seen throughout Jesus' other miracles as he has been carrying out his earthly ministry. But these details, nevertheless, are important. First, I want to highlight for us that, there was, that this miracle took place, again, according to similar patterns that we've seen. All right? There's individuals that bring someone to Jesus Jesus has an interaction with this individual, heals him, and then he sends him out, and then there's, there's what's often called the messianic secret. Oh, go, just, you know, go to your home and don't, don't talk to anyone, don't even enter the village. But notice that Jesus, that there are individuals that brought this man to Jesus. Again, a familiar pattern throughout the book. Individuals, they, they know someone who has a need. They, he needs the healing touch of Jesus Christ. And so the friends or the family of this individual go and bring him to Jesus so that Jesus may heal this individual. Let's think about the implications of that. I'm, you know, I'm reminded of Romans chapter 10 where we have these words, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's a tremendous promise. Praise God for that. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then Paul asks the question, 
how then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? People have to be brought to Jesus. Think of your own testimony. How is it that you came to faith in Jesus Christ? I think of in my own life. You know, I had the, had the blessing of being raised in a Christian home with, with godly Christian parents and, and attending a church regularly. I heard the truth from a very young age. But it wasn't until I was 14 years old that I placed my faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. But, but I had the, the benefit of, of all this time of people building into my life and seeking to teach me and seeking to show to me the Word of God and what the gospel is, that, that you must trust in the life, death, and the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what He accomplished upon that cross. None of us were completely ignorant of everything about the gospel and then just woke up one morning and just like, oh, I'm going to believe in Jesus. That didn't happen. No, there was, there was some communication that came to you at some point in your life. Even if that communication was at a very young age and maybe you don't even have any recollection of not knowing about Jesus and not knowing about what the gospel is. There was still someone who had to communicate that to you. Someone brought you to Jesus. All of us were like blind individuals, and someone brought us to Jesus. Think of the implications of that for our own lives as we interact with other individuals, that we look around at the world around us and we see people that are going every which way. The Scripture says that all we like sheep have gone astray. We've each turned each of us to our own way. Blind individuals, spiritually. They need to be brought to Jesus, right? We, have, we can have a role with that. We can have the opportunity with that to, to tell people about Jesus Christ, to show them what the gospel is. So I challenge us, who can we bring to Jesus? Who can you share the truth of the gospel with that they may be given eyes to see? Second, consistent with the, with the pattern that we have seen throughout this book, look at the end of the paragraph where it says that Jesus instructed him, do not even enter the village in verse 26. This reminds us of the regular habit of Christ to try to keep things somewhat quiet for a time, even as he was doing different healings, as he was providing life for different individuals, healing people of their infirmities or casting out demons. He was instructing them, hey, don't tell anyone about this, but go to your home, go back to your life, etc., and we've talked before about the significance of this and what this means. And I just want to remind us of that. Jesus was instructing these individuals to be quiet because he has a, a plan and a purpose for how he intends to unfold his ministry. And he wants it to unfold in that way. And, so as, as, and he's going to explain what that's going to look like in the coming paragraphs. But he does not want the unnecessary fame, the unnecessary commotion to be continue out. He's already got all these crowds coming to him. He doesn't want to add on to that things that would deter his mission and his purpose. And so he tells these individuals to be silent as a means to safeguard the mission. So there are many similarities with the other healing miracles that Jesus does within this text, but then there are the differences. And the differences is really strikes at the meaning of this 
text. What makes this healing stand out is this major significant difference from all the other miracles. In every other case, Jesus interacted with someone, he laid his hands on them, or he spoke a word, and instantly, whatever needed to be corrected was corrected in a moment. Well, here, it takes Jesus' two, it takes Jesus two tries, so to speak, for this man to be fully healed. Verse 23, he took the blind man by the hand, he led him out of the village, and when he had spit on his eyes, he laid his hands on him and said, do you see anything? And the man looked up and said, well, I see people, but they look like trees. Things were still blurry for this man. He can kind of see now, but, but his eyes are still not fully clear. You know, I, uh, I have a, you know, obviously I wear glasses, so I think when I take my glasses off, it's really difficult. Like, I cannot even see, you know, facial expressions on your faces right now. I don't know if you're smiling or frowning. I really don't. Well, this man says that he could not, he, all he could see was just these, looks like trees. Okay, I could tell they're probably people because they're moving about, but they're like, like a tree trunk or something here. So Jesus touches him. Again, now look at verse 25. Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Notice the stacking of terms here. It says that he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Those are three ways of essentially saying the exact same thing. The, the original words for, for opening your eyes has to speak of being able to see something again. He opened his eyes. He could see again. His sight was restored. He was able to see again, and he could see everything clearly. It wasn't just that he could see again, but everything was in sharp focus. And if I'm being honest, I'm a little jealous of that, right? I would love to have to not deal with glasses or contacts, Right? The repetition highlights something for us, that there is a complete restoration and clarity to this newfound sight. Right, just, Jesus didn't heal this man so that, he, okay, you know, he's, he's healed, he can see again, but he actually it would be nice if he could wear glasses again. No, no, no. Everything was crystal clear to him now. If today, if we were to try to, to accomplish that medically, we need like LASIK surgery or something, and even then it's not a guarantee that you're going to have good sights. No guarantee that it's even going to last. Here this man was completely and utterly restored to perfect vision. So that's the episode. That's the healing. What's the point to this? Again, as I alluded to before, why did it take Jesus two touchings, two attempts, so to speak, to get this man to see clearly? You know, in our Sunday school time, we've been moving through our class on inductive Bible study about how to interpret the Scriptures. We went through our observation phase. Right now, we're dealing with some interpretation, how to, how to do interpretation of a text. Well, when we were doing the observation stage, one of the important steps there is recognizing the context of the passage, right? We've been emphasizing this the whole way through. The context of the passage is so critical for us to understand the meaning of the text. And that is especially true in our passage here today. Why did it take two attempts for Jesus to heal this man? 
It cannot be that he, it, it just that he did not have enough power to do it in one shot, right? Jesus has expressed all kinds of power in a variety of arenas up to this point already. We have seen Jesus do incredible things, and he has not struggled to do any of it. We think of the, the power that it takes to calm the stormy seas. We saw Jesus multiply bread and fish for thousands of individuals. We saw Jesus raise someone up from the dead, cast out a whole host of demons out of one individual. And to correct a flow of blood in a woman who had, couldn't be helped by any physician for a, over a decade. Now, G, the issue here is not an issue of power. I mean, there are individuals who were just touching the hem of his robe and were being made clean of their infirmities. It is not an issue of power. Some have suggested that this was designed to show that Jesus can heal even the most difficult cases. But as we think of some of the other things I just described, surely there were other things that were just as difficult or even more difficult than what is being described in this text. Now, there's something more going on, and again, it is revealed through the context. We must consider the context, so let's, let's rewind just a few verses as we consider what came before us here in the preceding paragraphs. Jesus has just fed 4,000 individuals. They took up seven baskets full of leftovers. Thousands of individuals fed and they were full. They were satisfied, as the text says in verse 8. They ate and were satisfied and they still had leftovers. After that, the Pharisees, they're seeking a sign. They're demanding a sign from Jesus, as if Jesus hasn't already done enough miracles to provide evidence for who he is and who he is claiming to be. Well, then we see that the, as they're getting into the boat, the disciples just kind of have a moment of like, oh my goodness, I can't believe this, we forgot bread. And then Jesus takes a moment and says to them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of the infectious leaven of the Pharisees, which has the disciples feeling like, oh man, he's really calling us out here because we forgot bread. No, that's not what's going on. Jesus has to challenge them. And so look at verses 17 through 21. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Having eyes, do you not see? Do you not yet understand what I'm trying to communicate to you? The things I'm trying to teach you, it's not just about bread. I'm trying to teach you some spiritual truth here. And so as we consider all the things that the disciples saw, well, the disciples had seen so many things, right? They had seen all, I just described so many powerful miracles of Jesus Christ, raising the dead, healing individuals, casting out demons, calming the stormy seas, and yet the disciples are still like, oh my goodness, oh no, what about bread? Jesus, I, I, 
I, I can handle bread, right? Haven't you seen that? I can handle bread. They saw so much and did not yet understand. So much seeing and so little understanding. They saw, but only partially, as if they were looking around at men who looked like just tree trunks walking around. Or like someone who needs glasses and doesn't have them, right? They still cannot see clearly. In the following paragraphs, after the text that we've been studying, this Jesus does this two-stage miracle, and then what happens right after that, Jesus is going to teach his disciples, and he's going to speak very plainly to them. Or he's going to be very direct about the reason and the purpose for why he has come to this earth. So if we could just look ahead, and we're going to study this passage in greater detail in coming weeks, but just look ahead with me for a moment at verses 31 and 32. It says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. He just, he just came right out there in the open and just spoke it very plainly. No more beating around the bush, no more cloaking anything, just very, very clear language. This is what must happen. This is why I'm here. This is how things will have to unfold. Jesus wants the disciples to see clearly. He wants them to understand. He wants them to embrace the purpose of why Christ is there. And as we'll get into things, we'll see Peter and his misunderstanding and say, oh no, Lord, this must not happen. And Jesus must challenge him. In verse 33, he says, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but rather on the things of man. He still isn't quite seeing clearly but Jesus, so patiently, so carefully, seeking to continue to increase the disciples' understanding so that they would see clearly. And so as we think about those details of what comes before this text and what comes after, sandwiched in here we have this, this, this episode, this, this healing, this miracle, which functions almost like a, a living parable for the experience of the disciples within this text. They don't see clearly. Jesus is, is challenged them on this point. Having eyes, do you still not see? Do you still not understand? And then him bringing very clear direct, uh, instruction for them, very plain language for them. This is what must happen. Jesus increasing their clarity of sight. This miracle functions like a living parable right before their eyes. The disciples didn't see clearly at first. They didn't understand the purpose of why Messiah has come. Jesus will help them to see clearly in the end. And so he does this two-stage miracle to illustrate, okay, yeah, this is kind of where you're at right now. You, you see a little bit, but it's not clear yet. We'll get you there. It will come. The clarity will come. As we think about that, I, I cannot help but see the parallels of how that is reflected really in all of the Christian life, right? I mean, few people respond to faith in the gospel the very first time they hear it. 
I think that does happen in, in some cases where there are people who had never heard the gospel before and it's explained to them for the first time and everything just makes sense, everything clicks and so they, they respond in faith immediately and we praise God for that when it happens, but that, that's not the predominant experience of most individuals. I know that was not the experience for me in my life. I heard the gospel many times over. I could have even given a very clear articulation of the gospel myself before I actually believed it for myself. Though I understood many details about the content of the gospel, I could not see clearly embracing it for myself until the age of 14 years old. And so much changed for me in that moment when that happened. All right, so much of life changed for me in that moment. Even, even at that young age of 14 years old, I, I remember very clearly the things going on in life at that particular point and, and how I was, I was caught up in certain patterns of sin even at that age. And there was points where I even despaired of life because of the things that were going on. And when God saved me and pulled me out of that, I could just see so many things so much more clearly, even at that age, than I could not have seen before. When salvation came, I found a new power and a strength through the Holy Spirit. And that doesn't mean that instantly I was perfect, right? I, there, there, was a, there was a process of growth there. There were still struggles with different sins along the way. And I, and I still struggle with different sins. But my relationship to sin was forever changed that moment I came to faith in Jesus Christ. I think that's the experience of, of so many of us, right? There, there, when we come to faith in Christ, there's, there's a change that happens there. And there's, there's, there's a progressive aspect to it where, where we begin to see things more clearly and better over time. But it comes. That moment of salvation begins that process for us. I think of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, that describes how the light of the gospel has come. It says, For God who has said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In my own personal testimony, I can testify to how though I knew the truth for years, I did not place my trust in Christ until that one day. At the age of 14, I knew the content, right? The gospel. Jesus died for my sin upon that cross. I knew I was a sinner in the reality of, of hell. I knew these things to be true. At least I knew them intellectually. I'd, I'd been taught them. I knew about them. And I had heard that I needed to place my trust in the finished work of Christ and that when I did so, God would no longer look at me as a, as a sinner, but look on me with the righteousness of Christ that would be given to me. That everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ and Him alone would be saved. But it wasn't until the day that I trusted in that that I could clearly see. Think of your own testimony. I'm sure many of you did not Believe the first time that you heard the gospel of Christ, but over time you came to that place where you came to faith in Him. That's the case of the disciples. You know, as we've been moving through this book, Mark does not paint the disciples as like these super saints, 
right? These, these disciples, they're, they're kind of clumsy individuals, especially as we look at Peter and what we're going to see in just a couple of weeks here, where he's just, he's, he says some things that we would look at and just like, man, Peter, you are so dumb. <laughs> like, what are you doing, man? But that's, that's Peter and that's the disciples and that's us. And Jesus is so patient with them. He's so patient with them. He, he, he patiently teaches them. He, he brings them along gradually and progressively until they eventually are at the point where they see clearly. And by the end of the book, as we get into the rest of the New Testament, there's a transformation that takes place when they receive the Holy Spirit and they are witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. <coughs> what happened? Christ, the Holy Spirit, work within them to begin to see things more clearly and then they begin to live in accordance with that clear sight. They eventually get it and they eventually live in light of it. And I hope that gives you hope. I know it gives me hope. You know, if the disciples who were there in the flesh with Jesus Christ, if it took them so long and Jesus was so patient with them, that gives hope for someone like me who can be very stubborn in my own way and can be so blind to the things that the Lord needs to teach me as well. Because the reality is it's not just our salvation experience that is like this, that takes time, but this is our entire Christian walk, right? Once, once we came, come to faith in Christ, we are saved, we're united to Christ by faith, we're sealed by the Holy Spirit unto the day of redemption, but that doesn't mean we're instantly perfect, Right? We're all people in process. We're all growing in our walk with Christ. And so often we walk through the Christian life with our eyes half closed. Right? We can be blind to the unhealthy patterns of sin that, that exist within our lives. And we can turn away from the truth about certain things. We can grieve and quench the Holy Spirit, as Paul says in his letters. Who, and the Holy Spirit is desiring to refine us and to conform us into the image of Christ. Christian life itself, though, is one of process. So think back in your own life, and I can think back in mine. Praise God, I am not like I once was, right? God has, has worked within me, and there are, there are patterns of sin that once were in my life that God has, has, has removed from me, and it's no longer patterns of sin. That doesn't mean I'm perfect, I hope by God's grace He's going to continue that refining work within me and I can say in 10 years, looking back on this moment today, wow, praise God, I'm not like 2023 Ken Chipchase. But He continues to refine, continues to mold into the image of Christ. Praise God that He is not finished with me yet. He who began a good work will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ. Spiritual sight is often a process. We don't always see clearly. The Word of God it comes to us and it begins to open our eyes. And even then, we don't always necessarily see fully and clearly at once. But the over time, the Holy Spirit uses the people of God and the Word of God to transform us into the image of God. And it's all for His glory. Seeing is a process. It requires the healing touch of the Savior. Seeing requires the patient teaching and instruction of our Lord. 
So as we consider this, this miracle and, and how it fits within the, within the context of what's there, I just I close with a few applications for us to think through today. Sometimes we're blind simply because we don't know what we don't know. We just don't know. We're just blind to it, right? That's, that's the whole idea of blindness. Like, I don't even know what's there because I'm blind. The Spirit of God uses the people of God and the Word of God to transform us into the renewed image of God. So the question is, are we willing to be humble enough to let others who may see into our lives more clearly than we do speak truth into our lives? To shine light on our blind spots. Other times we're blind and it's a willful ignorance. We don't see because we don't want to see. Like a child closing their eyes, plugging their ears, la, 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 I can't hear you, I can't see you. And we can do that on a spiritual level. Again, the, word, the Spirit of God uses the people of God and the Word of God to transform us into the image of God. The Word of God is so often in front of our faces, so often it speaks so clearly to the, to the things that we're dealing with and wrestling through in life. If we were just willing to see it and embrace it for what it says. And know the temptation for each of us in our minds, at least the temptation for me anyway, is to say, man, you know, you know so-and-so really needs to hear this right now. Well, hold on a second. We can't let our minds go there. Right, we're so easily, easily jumped to being these uh, speck removal surgeons, right? Removing the speck out of somebody else's eye. But meanwhile, we still have that plank that's protruding from our face. We need to consider our own hearts with this. One final exhortation as we close. As different things come to our attention, we may be tempted to feel the pressing weight of guilt because of this sin or that. Oh, man, you're revealing this to me and oh Lord, I'm... I'm just so burdened by this or maybe we just feel shame or maybe we feel embarrassment because of it. Maybe we feel, feel unworthy of Christ's love. And to a degree, I think there's a degree to which those feelings can be appropriate. We are unworthy, right? We are unworthy of Christ. But that's what makes the gospel such good news. We are unworthy, but the Scripture says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He knows we're unworthy. That's why the gospel is a thing, because we are unworthy. So in these moments when we're tempted to just, to just wallow in our guilt and in our shame and in our embarrassment, we do well to remember the gospel of Jesus Christ, to go to Him. Christ died, He was buried, He rose again from the dead to free us from that sin, to free us from guilt, to free us from shame. Yes, we are unworthy of Christ's love. But while we were yet sinners, while we were yet unworthy, Christ died for us. Our standing before God was never based upon our own worthiness. It was never based upon our own merit, anything that we could bring before the table, before God. It was always based on His grace. 
So run to the cross of Christ. As Hebrews says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we do that? By looking unto Jesus, the one who is the author of our faith and the perfecter of our faith, the one who will see us through. Look unto Christ. He will sustain us. He will give us eyes to see more clearly that we may walk with Father, thank you so much for this passage. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your patience with your disciples. Lord, you are so tender with them, so careful, so loving, and yet very direct as well. I praise you for this. I praise you that, Lord, even though there are times in our lives where we have blind spots, Lord, there are times when we do not see clearly, I I just thank you that your spirit continues to work within us to, to shine light on our blind spots, to, to help us to grow and walk with Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that we would look unto Christ. I pray that we would look unto the gospel. I pray that we would rejoice in what Christ has given us and that we would rest in the hope of the gospel. Lord, I pray that if there are blind spots within our lives, that we would seek to Let your perfect word and let your spirit have his way within our hearts that continue to transform us and form us into the image of our creator. And I pray, Lord, that we would be faithful individuals, Lord, that even as we are a part of this church body, as we think of how we can interact with one another and encourage one another, stir one another up into love and good deeds, Lord, we have the opportunity to to help others see more clearly. We have the opportunity to have others help us see more clearly. Lord, we have opportunities with with others who do not believe in the gospel of Christ to to share with them the good news of the hope of the gospel that they too may see, see clearly. Lord, I pray that you would help us. Give us your wisdom. Give us your grace. May we honor you through it all. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.